Hi there, I'm glad that you're joining us again at the podcast What Are You Going To Do With That? from Haifa University. My name is Dani, I'm a PhD student at this university and I'm learning from the life and career stories of the scholars involved in the center while getting to know them. I'm especially glad because this is the first episode that we're recording under extreme conditions. Due to the measures in place that are to prevent the COVID-19 or coronavirus to spread even more widely, the university has been closed and I wasn't able to meet my guests in person. This recording is therefore done online and we are able to see each other and also to have drinks on our own desks during our chats. So thank you, Dr. Rotem Rosenberg Rubens, for volunteering to be our guinea pig with this new setting of the podcast. You're welcome. Hi. So let me introduce Rotem first. Rotem holds an LLB, that is Magna Cum Laude, and an LLM, Summa Cum Laude, and a PhD from the Faculty of Law at Tel Aviv University. There, she has also taught a course on the amendment of wrongful convictions. Last academic year, she was a postdoctoral research fellow at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Next to her academic career, she serves as the coordinator of the Public Committee for Preventing and Amending Wrongful Conditions, headed by former Supreme Court Justice Professor Joram Danzinger. Rotem's articles on the subject of wrongful convictions in Israel have been quoted in verdicts of the Supreme Court, and an article based on her PhD was recently published in the New Criminal Law Review. Currently, Rotem is a postdoctoral fellow at the Minerva Center at the University of Haifa. She specializes in criminal law, particularly in crimmigration and the interrelations between criminal law and citizenship. That's something that I find very interesting as someone who's studying migration. Her research at the center focuses on Israel's new counterterrorism legislation and the way in which it reflects the changing relationship between Israel and the occupied territories. I found it very nice that your work has been quoted by the Supreme Court. It's really an example of how academics can influence practice, right? So I wanted to congratulate you with that. And that will be the first thing that we can toast to. I'm here on this side drinking my own regular poison, which is amaretto. And what are you having today? Uh, just a beer. We should uh, probably toast to good health, right? That's the most appropriate toast. <laughs> okay, there we go. Cheers. <laughs> All right. Too bad that no one can hear us actually cling the glasses, but hopefully we'll soon be able to. So I'd like to start with just a few short questions, as usual, that should be answered shortly. Number one, what does your perfect breakfast look like? Steak and eggs, and if I'm on holiday, then also a Bloody Mary. <laughs> for breakfast? Yeah, I really like like uh, steak and eggs and bacon and eggs and stuff like that for breakfast. Uh, but I can't, I can never eat too uh, early in the day, though. So this is a type of breakfast for like 10 a.m. Or so, or so. And now with the coronavirus and everyone being in quarantine at home, does that mean you have time for this? <laughs> Actually, we've been having some nice breakfast. It's one of the few advantages of the coronavirus. Today I made uh, matzia for the first time in this Passover season. That sounds good. <laughs> All right. So maybe something good out of the coronavirus then, in your household at least. Yeah, maybe <laughs> at least. On the culinary side, at least. <laughs> yeah. All right. Second question. Are you more productive at night or in the morning? Definitely at night. I am not a morning person at all. <laughs> all right. And how uh, do you combine that with family life? I mean, if you have younger children, then maybe the mornings are busier. Yeah. Or the nights are quieter. Um, actually, 
I have a five-year-old daughter, so ever since she was born, I've uh, become a little bit more of a morning person. Uh, my day starts earlier, obviously, ever since she was born. But I still uh, uh, like to work in the evenings. Um, I find it very productive after she goes to sleep to get some work done. All right, so still the night person. And do you have a hobby or do you have even time for a hobby? I don't have much time for hobbies, but I am a sports freak. I love sports, especially football. So I guess that's uh, one of my hobbies. Is that American football or soccer? No, no, soccer, soccer. What Americans call soccer. So you still play? No, I never played. I, I like to watch sports. Um, and I also love to read and I really like music. Uh, but, you know, those are pretty conventional hobbies. I mean, but it's also easier to find time for hobbies like that than, you know, mountain climbing or whatever. True. Yeah. <laughs> so at least I get to do them. And how do you usually get your news? Do you look at national news or more internationally oriented is it mostly from TV, newspaper, apps, social media? Mostly, mostly newspapers, mostly from the internet. I hardly ever watch the news anymore, though. You try not to. I try. It's, it's become too uh, unbearable. I mean, lately with the virus, I, I have been watching a bit more, you know, to keep updated. But uh, day to day, I only yeah. uh, get my news from the internet. And after all of this corona crisis is over, what place would you like to travel to most? Um, my best friend lives in Portland, Oregon, and we were planning on going this September. Uh, there was supposed to be a conference which in my uh, field, which I hope will still happen. And we were really, really looking forward to seeing her. So I really hope we'll get to go this September. And anyway, that would be my answer. I'd have to say Portland, Oregon to see Neely. I only heard good stories about that place, so I'm going to keep my fingers crossed for you. I've already mentioned that you are a postdoctoral fellow at the Minerva Center and Haifa University, and that you focus on Israel's new counterterrorism legislation. So can you explain to me a little bit more about how you got to the Minerva Center and tell us a little bit more about your current projects? Yeah, so my project is really about how Israel has reached a new balance between emergency powers for um, trying to uh, combat terrorism and cope with um, uh, terrorist suspects. So emergency powers on one hand, and then try to find a balance between these sort of powers and uh, more conventional powers of criminal law, such as, you know, the arrest law that allows the state to arrest or, or detain uh, terrorist suspects. And what we're seeing in the, in the new counterterrorism legislation is that there is sort of a shift from emergency powers to powers of more conventional criminal law that are more sort of consistent with the rule of law. And this doesn't mean that the, this new legislation, you know, that it doesn't rely on detention, on administrative detention at all. It does have, you know, some, uh, uh, it gives the police uh, and the army some very severe powers but it also tries to sort of move away from more, you know, em from the emergency legislation uh, to a more, I would call it, criminal law framework or a conventional criminal law framework. And I think that this is very interesting because it shows that maybe Israel is sort of beginning to envision its relationship with the Palestinian people a little differently. And so this is actually what I'm trying to do in my research. And once I decided that that's what I wanted to do in my postdoc, 
the way to the Minerva Center for the rule of law under extreme conditions was very short because that's exactly the type of thing the Minerva Center does, right? I mean, look at these like emergency powers or very exceptional powers and see how the rule of law should treat these um, very draconian powers. And here we see that Israel didn't accept, you know, the principles of the rule of law maybe completely in this new counterterrorism legislation, but it's sort of trying to strike a new balance. And I think this is uh, very, very interesting. It does sound interesting. And like you said, I also heard all of these words that have to do with the Minerva Center, with the rule of law, emergencies, extreme conditions. Um, is that the reason why you chose to apply for this particular scholarship at the Minerva Center? Yes, absolutely. I think the Minerva Center is really uh, the, the place right now that's doing the most interesting and relevant work uh, when it comes to these issues, to these topics. Um, and also, you know, the center is very sort of um, interdisciplinary and has a very wide scope. So for me, for instance, um, I had to sort of show them and convince them that this, that my topic, right, that my research topic uh, was very relevant to the center, despite the fact that it doesn't really deal with the rule of law under extreme conditions, right? Because one of the most, uh, one of the anomalies in Israel is that we're always considered to be under an emergency rule. And here, what we're really seeing, I think, is sort of a shift from this, um, this old understanding of terrorism, especially when it comes from Palestinian residents of the occupied territories. We're starting to see this new understanding of terrorism, not as an extreme condition, right? Not really as, you know, this uh, extreme emergency, but as something that's sort of ongoing, an ongoing threat, but also a threat that's not very exceptional. I think that one of the things that uh, we see in the new legislation is that Israel wants to start treating terrorist threats a little more like it treats regular crime. And it starts to consider Palestinians suspected of terrorism as sort of less as enemies that are external to Israel and more as sort of homegrown terrorists, um, people who live under Israeli rule and who need to be treated more like conventional criminals than like sort of enemies of, uh, uh, or foreign nationals uh, who attack the state. So here I was coming to the Minerva Center and saying to them, listen, um, this is actually a very interesting situation because it says, let's try to look at terrorism not as an extreme condition, not as something completely exceptional, but as part of, uh, you know, as sort of a, um, a regular threat that Israel has to deal with and will always have to deal with. And I think this is what the legislation is doing. And I mean, I was very glad that the Minerva Center actually said, great, you know, this is part of our scope. And um, it was really funny because... Uh, a little after, I think, I, I started my year at the Minerva Center, someone in the center, I think maybe Ellie Salzberger, mentioned that maybe the center needs to start looking at the rule of law under extreme conditions in non-extreme conditions. <laughs> I mean, maybe we start to think, we need to start thinking about how, you know, the rule of law is influenced by all these uh, uh, powers and these emergencies, despite the fact that they're not extreme, but they're actually part of um, our day-to-day, -day, our daily lives. So the moment he said that, I, I just thought to myself, yeah, that's exactly like the right sort of uh, way, I think, the right narrative uh, uh, for my research. And I, 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 I was immediately convinced that my research really did fit into the center. Interesting. All right. So 
you've, you're now in the Minerva Center at the University of Haifa. We know that you've been in the University in Jerusalem and also in Tel Aviv, actually Tel Aviv most of your time as a student, right? Um, would you tell us a little bit about your BA, your MA, uh, your PhD, how you've picked your topic to start with? It's actually a funny story. I started with history and law. I, did a, a, I started with a double major, law and history. And to be quite honest, I was completely sure that I would like history much better. Uh, I always planned to study history. That's what I studied in high school. I didn't plan to study law until a few months before uh, the school year started. And pretty soon it all changed and sort of switched up on me. Um, I realized that law was actually <clears throat> the subject that I wanted to continue in, especially criminal law, which is my main area of expertise. And so after my LLB, I continued immediately to do an LLM uh, in law, but I also wanted to gain some practical experience because I, I really believe that in the legal profession or in, in academics and in legal academics, you also need to know uh, sort of what's going on in the field a little bit. And uh, because law is um, an academic subject, but also a very practical subject, I always believed that, you know, the theoretical or academic and the practical sides uh, really uh, uh, go together well and that they can sort of influence one another. So I went and uh, did my uh, internship in the public defender's office. Um, I entered for the National Public Defender's Office, and there I was exposed for the first time to the issue of wrongful convictions and retrials in Israel. And I started learning about this issue of, uh, of wrongful convictions, you know, what were the main reasons that innocent people could be convicted of crimes that they didn't commit? And, you know, working on these cases and starting to learn about this issue made me realize that academically... This field was really undeveloped in Israel. There was not enough writing and not enough research on wrongful convictions in Israel and on retrials and post-conviction procedures in Israel. Uh, and this is actually a topic that's really, really strong in the United States and in England and Canada and, and, and a lot of other countries. But in Israel, it was very under, underdeveloped academically. It still is. So you actually stopped your studies for a year? So that you could just do the practical part and then return to the academics. Yes, except it's a little more complicated than that. Because then after my internship added, uh, ended, I was offered a job with the National Public Defender's Office. And I loved the job there. So I continued to work there as, a, as an attorney for three years, during which I completed my thesis. And then, only then did I begin my PhD and stop working as an attorney, as a public defender. So what made you change your mind? Because you worked there for three years and you said you liked it very much. Obviously, they were interested in you for hiring you after the internship. What made you change your mind to go back to a PhD? It wasn't changing my mind. I, I, I knew from a pretty early stage that I wanted to do a PhD, but I also wanted to, to be a public defender. Um, and I think this is basically my, uh, I don't know if it's my curse or my blessing, But this has always been sort of a condition for me, this sort of um, always wanting to do everything <laughs> at once. And, um, you know, sort of practicing being a lawyer and being an academic, it really feels sort of like schizophrenia sometimes because I, I like doing both very much. Um, and I think I chose, I chose academia, uh, academia 
uh, eventually. To, I, I chose to do a PhD and I chose to go on, try to continue in an academic path. But I enjoy uh, the practical work very much. And I also think that the two really complement each other well. Because actually what, what, I was, what, what I was trying to say was that if I hadn't worked in the public defender's office, I never would have written my, my thesis, my graduate thesis on wrongful convictions. And then, for instance, the articles that you mentioned earlier that were quoted by the, the, the Supreme Court, they never would have been written because I, I, I simply wouldn't have uh, gotten acquainted with this issue as much as I did. And actually, something similar happened with my PhD. Uh, because my PhD, it's not, on wrongful, it's not on wrongful convictions, and it's also not on, uh, on uh, terrorism. It's on... Um, on uh, the detention of asylum seekers in Israel. So in Israel, as you of course know, because this is also your topic, there are tens of thousands of, of asylum seekers from African countries, uh, which for several years were uh, detained, uh, were, they were placed in immigration detention or in all, types of, all kinds of detention alternatives. And what we saw there was that the state used actually criminal law, used the criminal justice system and all kinds of criminal justice mechanisms to control and detain these asylum seekers. So when I was in the public defender's office, this was the first time that I started really realizing that this was the case because suddenly the public defender's office that usually doesn't deal with refugees, right? I mean, usually they deal with criminals with, or people accused of committing crimes. Suddenly here... They, were, they found themselves defending all kinds of asylum seekers and refugees who were placed in detention despite never being convicted uh, of any offense. And suddenly the public defender's office became a little bit involved in this issue. And when I was, I was still an attorney there, I suddenly realized that there is something very interesting going on. How criminal law, which once was only, which traditionally was only, you know, designed to punish criminals, punish and, and rehabilitate criminals, is now sort of doing something completely different than its traditional role. And it's suddenly beginning to manage and control these asylum seekers and migrants who are not criminals, certainly not in the, you know, traditional sense of the word. So I started reading up on that subject. And I realized that what was happening in Israel actually corresponds with um, a, a wide uh, phenomenon that's been taking place, that's been happening in a lot of other countries, you know, in the world. And that phenomenon is called in the literature crimigration, the intersection of criminal law and immigration law, right? So criminal plus immigration equals crimigration. And this opened my eyes to a completely new field of law. So I decided to write my PhD on this subject. And this never would have happened if it weren't for my work with the Public Defender's Office. And earlier you talked about maybe that, that is also a little bit of a curse, right? That you want to do both. You want to do everything, which I think a lot of PhD students feel. They also always usually want to be the perfect one in everything and they want to do as much as they can, which is why cutting down the uh, scope of your research is so hard, isn't it? And I know that now, now that you're doing this postdoc, you're also still the coordinator of the public committee for preventing and amending wrongful conditions. So how do you combine both of these tasks? 
Do you have any tips or recommendations? Uh, so in a way, this is the said curse, right? Uh, I was offered this job uh, coordinating this committee and I thought to myself, great, I'll finally have some, I might have some actual influence on the way our system, our criminal justice system um, deals, copes with, um, uh, you know, with wrongful convictions and with the main um, reasons for wrongful convictions. And the work is really fascinating. It is a bit hard combining it with my academic research, but I have to say it's a little easy. It's easier than combining real, um, uh, uh, pra real practical work, practicing law uh, with academics, because my job in the committee is essentially academic. What I do is I provide, I do the academic research that informs the work of the committee. I write the drafts of the reports, but this is, uh, and so this, uh, this, this is academic research that has a very uh, practical implications or that's meant for, uh, in order to uh, come to very practical conclusions, but it's still academic research. So it's not easy to combine, especially since it's, uh, it's, different type of research than the one that I'm doing for the Minerva Center. It's very different, but I do recommend it because I, I really think that, because I, I really believe, and I think that this is also something that the Minerva Center really believes in, that academics, in, at, at least in my field, in, in law, should try to influence reality and should try to influence, uh, uh, you know, the way things are, uh, are going on in practice. So I, I really do uh, uh, recommend it if you have the opportunity to do something like that. Because that might be an additional uh, struggle, a little bit, that you're not only combining uh, the work that you do and also the studies, but you're also combining your private life, your family. Yeah, I, uh, I love my daughter dearly, but I will say to anyone who doesn't have children yet, that it's, for me at least, the hardest job in the world, motherhood, parenthood. I think that that's the hardest job. It's harder than writing a PhD. <laughs> Uh, so I'm sorry, PhD students, uh, if that... I was like, oh my, I'm not sure if I want to start with this one then. <laughs> it's, it, it's, a very, it's a very different type of, uh, you know, type of uh, challenge and type of difficulty. But it's, it's I think, the most, um, in a way, it's the hardest work that, uh, that I ever did. But it's, of course, it's very rewarding. And it, it's, it's the hardest thing, I think, to combine with your career. I mean, it's, it's easier to combine, you know... Doing academic work with some practical work that also influences your um, your academic work—that's easier than <laughs> combining your academic slash professional work with a child. But you know, everyone does it. I mean, I only have one child, so I really can't complain. Any tips for anyone trying to work hard while in quarantine? <sighs> it's a tough one because I'm still figuring out for myself what's best for me. Yeah. I think, I mean, I, I look, I, I'll be lying if I said that I completely figured it out. You know, some days I, I managed to get myself, I get to do some work done. Some days I managed to do nothing. I think my tip, the tip that works for me, is more a psychological tip than a practical one. And that is adjust your expectations. Like, try to do something very, try to define, uh, uh, you know, your, uh, uh, your tasks for the day. And try to define them in a way that you might actually succeed in doing them. Don't try to do too much in this time. Because what I've learned is that when you try to, when your expectations are unrealistic and you try to do too much in a day, you end up not doing what you planned on doing and being angry at yourself. So <laughs> it's better just not to be angry at yourself in advance. You want to stay motivated. Sounds like a good tip. Thanks for that. 
Um, you also mentioned that um, you can work from home um, more easily if your daughter is, for example, in school and your husband is helping you, picking her up from school. Um, did you get any help during the PhD or during research or with work or even your family life from family, friends, colleagues, maybe even supervisors? Oh, so much help. I mean, I don't know what I would have done if my parents and Adam's parents were both alive and well and living in Tel Aviv <laughs> near us, uh, not that far from us. They helped so much. They still do. And yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, of course, my supervisors helped a great deal with my PhD, but that's what you can, ex I mean, you can't expect from your supervisors to also help with your daughter, right? Or with parenting. Do they understand did your supervisors always have an understanding of your additional job and your additional private life? Um, I was very lucky with my supervisors. Professor Shaila V from Tel Aviv University, who's now the head of the Van Leer Institute, and Professor Lucia Zedner from Oxford University, who uh, for some reason agreed to be my advisor, despite, you know, not knowing me before. <laughs> um, so thanks for that. Uh, they were both just great. And yes, they were understanding. Um, you know, they both they both have families. They both, uh, they're both, you know, very sort of, they're both great and, and reasonable people. You definitely do need, I think, a supervisor, a thesis advisor who is understanding of that. Um, and I think you need to be upfront uh, with whoever you're working with and set, set uh, uh, expectations, set realistic expectations also with your supervisor not just with yourself. I think it's very important. Is there anything that you would have wished you would have known before you would have started your academic career? Yes, but this is this might be the slightly more depressing part of the podcast. <laughs> we can deal with it, no worries. Yeah, okay, so uh, here's something that I, 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 I think I knew this when I started my PhD. I knew it to some extent, but I wish I'd known, I'd understood it better. My supervisors, uh, especially Shaila V, who's my, my main supervisor and who was also my supervisor um, in my graduate thesis. So they, he, were, he was very, very open with me when it came to the chances of getting a, a, a position in, uh, in academia after you finish your PhD. And he told me that the chances are always low, uh, that there are very few um, jobs each year. And that he thinks that I should still go for it and, and try, but that uh, I should also know, you know, the, the challenges. Um, so he, he definitely was open to me and was open with me about that. But having said that, I think I would have liked to know just how difficult it is today to get a job in academia. I, I would have done a PhD anyway, probably. But I think that I would have maybe gotten into this, um, to this whole race um, more realistic expectations. And to quote uh, a different uh, law professor who just, I, I had a conversation with recently, who was very open uh, uh, with me about the chances. She said it in a way that I, I wish someone had said it to me before I started my PhD, okay? So here goes. She said this, being a professor today, getting a job, you know, uh, uh, in one of the universities or good colleges in Israel is pretty much akin to being drafted to the NBA or becoming a rock star. She said to me, look, it's, you have to be a star. Like it's, it's, it's all about stardom now. If it used to be that you could just be good, you know, you could just be good enough and you were in, but now 
it's sort of like being good enough is sort of like being good enough to be a college basketball player. All right. Think about the United States. Okay. About the, the college basketball. If you manage to get a scholarship to play for one of the best colleges, that's amazing. Most people who are pretty good at basketball don't get into college, don't get a full scholarship to play basketball for college, right? I mean, they don't, even if they were on the high school basketball team or whatever. But the fact that you got a scholarship to play basketball in high school still doesn't guarantee you a place in the NBA. So I guess that's what I'm trying to say to myself and, and, and to other people who are, you know, in less advanced stages of their studies, people who are PhD students. If you think that you, if you're good and you're in, you, you really are interested in being an academic, I think you should go for it. I'm going for it, you know, despite the odds. But I think you should also have an, an, a plan B, an alternative, and you should go into it with your eyes open. Because remember, I mean, even if it's slightly less hard than becoming an NBA player, NBA players at least become rich and famous when they make it. <laughs> Law professors don't even become right. that rich or that famous. Right. Let's talk about the depressing part for just one second to envision it. What if you start applying for academic jobs and you won't get it? After one or two years, no one is replying to you. Would it have still been worth it for you, for yourself, to have done the PhD and the postdoc? So I don't, I, I, I wouldn't regret it at all. I mean, I enjoyed my PhD research very, very much. And I'm enjoying my postdoc research very much. And, you know, first of all, this research, research I think, is important in itself. It challenges me. It's an intellectual challenge. And I think that I'm writing about things that are important and that it would be important to publish uh, more articles on these issues. Uh, I definitely want to keep teaching no matter what, even if I'm not a full-time researcher. And I think that would be easier to do in a PhD, with a PhD. And also, uh, if I want to practice law, if I choose to practice law, um, then there are places where a PhD could also be useful. But I think that, you know, it really isn't that instrumental for me. I mean, even if I don't find uh, uh, my place in, in academia, which I obviously hope I will, I'll be very glad that I, that I you know, conducted this research. It was very stimulating for me. Um, and I, I think that's the most important thing in the end, to find the job that's most stimulating for you. So as a summary, maybe it's more about the journey than the destination, but it would be great if the destination is actually reached, <laughs> nonetheless. <laughs> it's definitely more about the journey than the destination. And that's, I think, one of the beautiful things about being an academic, that in a way, it's, all, it's always more about the journey than the destination. Because, you know, the research is what, what you're actually doing as an academic. That's, that's the, you know, the journey, the journey itself. Uh, when, you're, when I was a, a public defender, for instance, when I was a lawyer, I took, you know, great pleasure in working on some of the cases but there was a very clear end game here. The end game, the destination was winning the case and trying to help the client. And, and when you do that kind of stuff, it's very hard to take the, you know, the journey is more important than the destination approach. If the destination is prison for the client, then he won't really appreciate you taking that approach. But when you're an academic, you actually can take that approach. And I think that's one of the things that I love, uh, you know, about, um, about doing this intellectual work. So that took a positive turn, and I'm happy about that because we've talked about struggles quite a bit now. So let's move on to the other side of the coin, which is the successes. Could you tell me what your 
your biggest academic achievement? I'm hoping I haven't reached it yet. <laughs> That's a legit answer. Yeah, I mean, there, there, I can't. I don't know what my biggest success was. I can tell you, you know, there were certain landmarks uh, for me. You know, finishing the PhD. I mean, receiving the PhD was obviously uh, a landmark, and uh, having my first article uh, based on the PhD published in the New Criminal Law Review was a landmark. And what was the title of that article? It's a little long. Immigration as Population Management in the Control Society, Lessons from the Detention of Asylum Seekers in Israel. All right, so the PhD in the article, that sounds quite as quite big achievements, so I'll cheers to that. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, do you have uh, any important recommendations to someone who's about to enter the field for others to achieve something big? Choose your research topics wisely. Choosing wisely... A lot of times it means trying to find uh, a sort of a niche that isn't too sort of small and, and, and insignificant, but that hasn't been, you know, uh, done to death yet. Trying to find a topic that's, that's important, uh, but it's still underdeveloped in the literature. Or try to find sort of a topic that you think that you have uh, something in, um, particularly you know, unique to contribute. Um, or maybe try to find, this is, for instance, what I did, take um, a field of literature that already exists or that, that is an emerging field and try to develop it in the local context, for instance. Um, something that could make you stand out a little and be unique. And talking about choosing a topic, do you have any plans for after the postdoc? I'm very interested in um, the interrelations between criminal law and globalization do some research on the globalization of criminal law and the manners in which sort of domestic criminal law contributes to globalization processes, such as um, the emergence of um, transnational organizations or uh, uh, burden sharing between states, you know, uh, the uh, establishment of uh, sort of international networks. Um, I think that there's a, that that's a very interesting topic that hasn't been discussed enough yet and it relates very much to my uh, my work on immigration, so I think that will probably be the next project after uh, the counterterrorism legislation. All right, fingers crossed. To wrap up, I'd like to ask you another set of short questions. So, firstly, what was the most important conference that you've been to? Um, a couple of years ago, I was uh, in, at a conference at the Max Planck Institute in uh, Göttingen, in Germany. And that was a fascinating conference. It was on uh, borders um, and how the, the concept of the border uh, is changing in the age of globalization. And I met some really interesting people there. I think that would probably be uh, the most fascinating conference that I... What was it called, the conference itself? Borders, Fences, Firewalls, I think it was called. And then the next one. What do you consider to be your best finding or your most interesting new development or something you added to the field? My PhD looks at crimmigration in a particular context. Um, I developed um, a term, crimmigration under international protection, which is sort of the more particular ways that crimmigration regimes target refugees and asylum seekers and people who enjoy international protection so that they can't be deported. Nice. And then who has impressed you most with what they have accomplished? In the, in the whole world or 
it could be an idol, maybe it's a, a popular singer, for all I know, but I was hinting more towards the academic world or someone who maybe influenced you. Wow, I have to think about that. That's all right. I'm not in a hurry. So. Person who influenced me most is, is my is my supervisor. I mean, Shiloh V. Uh, he's the person who influenced me most most, most academically. Um, but if you're asking of like sort of this sort of idol um, character, the academics that I really, really, really look up to, and that influenced my PhD most, uh, are Michel Foucault and Gilles Deleuze. Foucault, we all know, and Deleuze is a a uh, French philosopher who um, wrote a critique on Foucault's works. And these works really, really influenced my PhD. So I think if I had to choose like one academic that I really, really admire and look up to and feel that he's like the most accomplished, uh, you know, academic I can think of, that would probably be Michel Foucault. Uh, but if we're looking at someone a little more close to home, someone I actually know, then I would have to choose uh, Shiloh V, my, uh, my supervisor. Uh, he was, um, you know, I've worked with him for many years now on my graduate dissertation and on my PhD dissertation. And um, he's still the first person I would call, uh, I call when I need some advice on anything academic or professionally related. Um, so I guess maybe the podcast is an opportunity to say thank you. Uh, <laughs> thanks, Shai. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. So <laughs> We'll make sure he gets the link to this interview. <laughs> All right, so the last question of today would be, how do you relax after a hard day of work? Um, I spend a quiet evening with my husband and have a drink. Uh, sometimes I watch a little television. I love animation. I love animation series. So you asked about hobbies earlier. I should have listed that as well. And that's what we all need. Very good. So thank you so much, Otem, for meeting me online this time. I hope soon that we'll be able to meet in person again at the Minerva Center. And the same goes for the audience. Thank you all for listening. Stay healthy and talk to you later. So tell me, Rotem, what uh, cartoon or animation are you looking at right now? I love, I well, right now, um, mostly Rick and Morty. You know Rick and Morty? Oh, I love that. I'm a pickle, Morty. You like Rick and Morty, really? Yes, I almost bought a Rick and Morty outfit for folding. For me and my partner, yes. I love that show. Do you like Bojack Horseman as well? Um, less, but my partner watches that too. Yeah. So, I mean, like, you know, Rick and Morty, Bojack Horseman, South Park, um, Simpsons, Bob's Burgers, I guess. 